Welcome to the Age of Audio. My name's Graham Brown from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. The Age of Audio is a series of conversations with thought leaders and changemakers in the world of audio. That's podcasts, radio, and social audio converging with big data to create engaging and authentic content for a new generation of listeners. Pascal from Noiser. Thanks for having me. Right, let's talk about Real Dictators. I love this show. There's something interesting about it, fascinating almost, that we can be intrigued and by these fundamentally bad people. And is it we're trying to humanize them or is there a curiosity with the macabre? And podcasts seem to be a great tool to do that. Tell us about Real Dictators first the genesis of that. But before we do that, Pascal, what's your favorite Real Dictator episode-wise? Yeah, thanks, Million. Yeah, I think at the moment, because it's live at the moment, the Hitler episodes are probably my favorite because I think everyone feels like they know the Hitler story a little bit. And so, yeah. but the more we dug into it, the more we realized that actually the common understanding that many of us have, like almost everyone has, actually comes from Hitler's own propaganda he kind of sowed these lies about his life story. And so many of them kind of have still exist today. And so the more we kind of pulled at the string, the more we realized that the real kind of academics on his life have really brought some really fascinating research, even very recently in the last few years, that really kind of unravels the myths about mm. his life. And so I found that particularly interesting, like about his war record, about his, him having servants when he was a young man. Whereas he used to always say how it, he impoverished he was ultimately. So it's absolutely the most interesting thing, partly because it's kind of on at the moment. So I just listened to one this morning, for example, probably why that one. Yeah, I mean, the quality is amazing. And you've obviously, as a team, done some great research. How does that make for dinner time conversation? Because you want to talk about this kind of stuff. And like, I can't imagine, it's like, it's a taboo subject, really, isn't it? I mean, you can talk about people like, maybe Papa Doc Duvalier, because people don't really know him. Kim Jong-il is maybe a slightly humorous, but like Hitler is a real taboo subject for a lot of people. So how does that go down when you start talking about your work? It must kind of get a rise out of some people. Yeah, definitely. And it's a balancing act because there's some really fascinating subjects and stories, whereas often we want to really make people who are listening, who are actually involved in some of these stories, not feel like we're just like reveling in the gruesome reality of these situations. Um, and so we really wanted to be kind of solely factually accurate, but also not revel in anything, just really just be very factually accurate. And so we kind of did that by interviewing lots of people, as many people as we could really, who survived these regimes. So you interviewed a lot of people. I imagine it's a lot of audio sources, isn't it? It's not like you're just doing a, a single narrative or you're having to collect a lot of in, almost like journalistic style, putting together a feature, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. So we kind of piece together these stories. And often some of these dictators have, they're very flamboyant. So at the moment, I'm doing one on Colonel Gaddafi, who's a really flamboyant guy, dressed really like, often wore like ridiculous clothing. And so like at the moment, we're writing it, we're producing it, and we're thinking, this guy is like, you know, he almost comes out like a rogue, but, you know, we really want to make sure he doesn't come across like a, a lovable rogue. I actually want to really you know, make sure people are really aware of like how bad he was to his people. And so we interviewed a few people from Libya, 
and they really help to like dispel the myths basically and go like this guy wasn't a guy in like peacock feathers type thing he was just a terrible human being so it's a balancing act yeah you can imagine if you were doing like a mafia documentary that you could easily by virtue of the fact telling their story the backstory you humanize it in a way and therefore effectively people who are gangsters and bad people and uh, criminals can be sensationalized and in some ways like lionized you can see like every godfather movie is that you like getting and understanding the through story, understanding why are they like this? You know, why is Michael Corleone a bad man who's sort of committed to murder? Then you sympathize, you, you do dislike them, but you also empathize is the word with them as well, which is a risk here, isn't it? Of doing this kind of work is that simply by telling their story and focusing on the backstory, then you risk people connecting with them and say, actually, I kind of understand him a little bit. And I imagine you can't avoid that, can you? Totally. kind of storytelling. Totally. And actually, it's one thing with the team. We have a final pass where we basically all read through the scripts and we go, are we accidentally lionizing this person? And if so, what can we do about it? Because often we're on quite tight deadlines, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we're like doing people justice who are kind of badly treated by these people. I think mm. the, it's been really heartening recently to, um, you know, a lot of American universities have reached out and, and wanted to use this as part of their teaching in the history departments. And I think that for me is kind of some degree of validation that we're not accidentally lionizing these people, but it's definitely something that we're really, really conscious of. And we don't want to make any mistakes on that because it's um, easy to do. Who of all your dictators is probably the most misunderstood? I mean, reading the list out, you've got Stalin, Kim Jong-il, Papa Doc Duvalier, Mao Zedong, and then you've got Hitler as well, and you've probably got a few more in the pipe as well. Yeah. Which, I mean, we've all heard the Hitler story and the Stalin story mainly, but what about the other guys? Are there any sort of surprises in there, people that sort of amaze you by virtue of the fact that yeah. just, they're unbelievable in their lives? So many of them. And like, the amount of research, I mean, we often go through extremely dry textbooks, like academic textbooks, that bring out the stories to life, but frequently we're like, this can't have happened. And then these like world-class academics, like, yeah, this, this really did happen. And I'm like, wow. I think the thing which we've like, yeah, I mean, like the Kim dynasty in North Korea. I mean, some of the, the spurious claims that have been thrown out are just remarkable. Some of the famous ones that came out and were like Kim Jong il getting like eight holes in one. I think it was the first time he played golf. <laughs> and then, and then he was born on a volcano. Too much. I haven't read that script for a few months. I've forgotten the details, but it's like, but, you know, they're so spurious, you know, in terms of their claims. And so, yeah, sometimes it's like the challenge, like taking out the fiction and the myth and finding out what's true. And so we try and like sometimes kind of almost break the fourth wall and say, look, this, this is tricky to navigate because there's so much myth, so much propaganda, but we always try and get a way through, which, you know, hopefully all the academics so far at least are happy with, which is great. You've done a fantastic job. Where does that start? How do you? take on a project like that is that brought to you by a publishing house or a network or do you come to them with the idea or is it reformatted from an existing series yeah well i think for real dictators i initially thought it'd be a really niche idea so i i used to be a tv director and i made a show years ago when i was an assistant director for discovery channel it's all about dictators and i felt that so much was being left on the cutting room floor and so what we were left with in the 30 minute documentary was just like a bullet point list, basically. 
and it was almost slightly tabloid. There wasn't much depth. And so when podcasts started coming around, I'd written a few podcasts before, but I thought, okay, Real Dictators, I remember being really frustrated that there was just unbelievable stories left, left, right, and center on the cutting room floor in the TV industry when I did that TV show. So yeah, for me, it was very much like, let's give it a go. I thought it'd be really niche. And then that quickly became quite a big series, very much organic growth. So that was just out of interest. I think for us, our big thing is, do we think it's a cool story or an interesting story? And if everyone in the team says yes to it, we go for it. And, and that's our commissioning process. We don't really think too much about what other people are doing, to be honest. I respect everyone in the industry. I think it's fantastic what some people are doing. But we typically just think, you know, do we between us think it's good? And if it is good, we run with it. Mm. And that is wholly owned by yourselves, right? Yeah. The IP. I mean, that's a hit, right, for you guys. I mean, imagine that now. Because there's not a lot of, you know, if you look at the podcast industry, the different models, there's a lot of people who get commission content from the networks. And then you also have, for example, the brand-owned content. And then the sort of the partnered content where you get a comedian or sports player, for example. Yeah. But to have something wholly of your own like that and have something of such scale and like recognition as well, that must be for you a real win, right? Yeah, it's definitely something which I used to make podcasts for other people when I was still a TV director. I found that you know, often those series did really, really well, but they were kind of in other, other people's hands. I, with Noiser, I thought, I actually really want to just do stuff and keep ownership over it and get it out there under our banner. I mean, we do do commissions for people as well, but at the same time, there's something really special about feeling real ownership over it. And uh, yeah, thankfully, so far, it's been going really, really well. And it looks like we're doing a lot more this year too, which is great. But yeah, if you can do it on your own, I think go for it. The whole kind of like commissions are fantastic, but equally the advertising industry is growing like wildfire. And there's so many more brands coming into the industry now that it's much more viable now to have your own original with advertising in than it was two, mm. three years ago when I first started making shows. How do you sell Hitler to brands as an advertiser, for example? Does that work? Are there, yeah. Is that a real niche area? I mean, again, imagine real dictators is probably for them one that you're not going to get a lot of brands lining up for. That Yeah, that's a tricky thing. Often with these kind of like big history pieces or with crime pieces, brands don't queue up for it necessarily, or you have to reach out to the right brand. And actually, I, kind of, I spun out an advertising company from this exact situation thinking, this is about intrigue and this is about people who want to learn and be kind of immersed in history. And so they went to brands with a kind of a new angle on it that actually this is about kind of people. These, this is for brands wanting to target thinking, questioning people. And suddenly that opened up the door to loads of advertising from many of the biggest companies in the world because they kind of wanted to target thinking, questioning people. And so it was less about dictators and more about that audience and who was listening. Did it take a banner hit like Real Dictators to open the door to advertisers? Do you think they would have got it without that on the table? Because it seems like that was a key component of the success, isn't it? It's like, okay, I can feel it now, what it sounds like and what it would be if we had a different subject, for example. Would you have been have done that without such a door opener? So I think it was definitely a really helpful door opener. And I think I'm finding, though, is even some of the shows that we provide adverts for, which are much smaller, I think 
now the doors are open to all these agencies and loads of brands. We say, hey, you want to advertise on this podcast, but we also have these other similar podcasts or similar audiences. And so I think it was, yeah, it definitely was a door opener, but very much the door very much was an open from then on. So I feel like, yeah, so I think it's, it was helpful. But now, thankfully, we're there now. So it looks like, you know. The market's evolved as well, right? That's the key part of it. So let's talk about advertising. So really, there's a number of different models in advertising. Everything from the branded podcast, which is really like a sponsorship, to the inserts, the read-throughs, et cetera, the mid-rolls, the pre-rolls. Where's the money at the moment? If you were to bet, which you have done by setting up a business, a second business, on advertising, what formats are currently working and where is the growth? The growth is really happening across all the different types of advertising. And so I think for me, initially, we were relying on just host-read adverts, and that's great. I thought really the key for a lot of podcasters is just getting inventory filled with adverts. And so for me, the key thing was having this waterfall system where if you've got an available ad slot and an advertiser doesn't fill it with a host-read slot, then you can still have a second bite of the cherry and have spot ads coming in. And people bidding for those spot ads. And if there's, you know, worst case scenario, no one doing that, then it'll be at least filled with, you know, in our case, 13 different programmatic suppliers. So for me, it's all about kind of the key is to have the waterfall advertising model where you're always going for the highest possible CPM. But if whatever reason you don't get that, you have different backups in, in place. And so I think that's really where I think the industry is going. I think it's been really great to see really a big move by some of the bigger platforms towards embracing advertising. I was a little bit unsure about a year and a half ago, like whether some of the bigger platforms would choose subscription models or choose a different type of monetization approach. And it's just been great. I think for the entire industry, the advertising is going so well and doing well, because it just means that the indie sector is going to keep thriving. It's got more, it's more empowered. And really, it just means that people are able to yeah people to you know more, more opportunities so i still think definitely or you know trawls try and get a sponsor on board if that sponsor doesn't work out host dreads i think typically are still the best as long as the cpms are high enough and that's something in the industry which we have to ensure that host red cpms stay at a, a decent level which they are at the moment which is great but spot ads are really growing which is kind of slightly more targeted programmatic advertising how does that work in practice the programmatic would be pre-loading onto Spotify, for example, because Spotify and other networks are going to want to do that themselves, aren't they? They want to want to insert their own ads at some point, maybe through Anchor, but I imagine if in, in the future, if they're serving up a lot of content that has advertising baked into it, won't that be an issue or is there some arrangement already with these networks? I think as everything, almost everything now is going towards dynamic insertion, it does mean that automated adverts are much more valuable because they can change as different deals end, et cetera. So there's a lot less baked in happening. I'm not sure exactly all of Spotify's inner workings. My company, Adalicious, is partnered with Spotify. And so, yeah, we do plug in programmatically via them as well as offer people host reds, spot ads, sponsorships, et cetera. So, yeah, what they do very long term, I'm not personally sure of, but certainly we're all in at the moment with programmatic ads. Okay. Where does the the sort of the content 
the commissioning happen in the sort of, the, you know, if you look forward into the future of podcasting a couple of years when advertising is really established, it certainly is in the US at the moment. And I think we're picking up in the UK a couple of years, maybe behind the US, Asia, two or three years again mm. behind. If you look forward, that market where people have to create content, obviously in the same way that you made content, which is either we're going to produce a, a hit show because then we can have, we've got real estate for advertisers or we go to the advertisers and say, what do you want? Where would the commissioning journey start? Do you think, where's it going to come in the future? Who's going to be creating the real, the real leading content in a couple of years? Yeah. Well, I think people commissioning content will always have a really big place in the industry because they can, they're, they're much more likely to be able to offer scale because in their existing network, they can advertise this new podcast coming along. And so for a new podcast coming along, if you don't already have a network in place, then it can be a little bit tricky to know exactly how to scale the audience to ensure the, because advertising was always in some way linked to monetization. So I think with these people commissioning work, I think that that's going to continue and more networks and a commission because they can pretty much guarantee a certain size of audience based on having such a big existing audience so i think that will continue and certainly um but there should be more options for people to to go themselves and build their own networks which i think is great i wonder if it's going to follow a netflix style model where you obviously when they started getting the numbers and they had the revenues they would invest in their own content because the margins on it are so much better than licensing it from other people right yeah and then that model was then Netflix would find agents effectively in some matchmaking process with production companies. And the production companies are obviously like favored companies and so on. But that model, I mean, it was all subscription-based, wasn't it? I mean, obviously advertisers yeah. weren't involved in that. So that was kind of interesting. I wonder how this is going to play out. Well, this is very time. much like for me a year ago, was very much thinking, are we going to start seeing the Netflixification of the industry? To some extent, you will, you will have these companies having premium kind of only available on, on their own network type shows and building out their own on brand, their own on brand uh, podcasts, which are exclusive to them. However, really, I think it was very telling for me how big Spotify in the last few months have gone into advertising that actually they want to monetize like everyone and many, many people as possible. And that for me is, was really good to see because it's kind of empowers the open ecosystem that we had in podcasting for the last few years, as far as I can tell, at least, to keep growing. So you don't kind of absolutely have to get a commission. You don't have to, like for my TV days, if you didn't get a commission, then that's not, you know, that ideas will not be made. You couldn't just go and make it regardless. And so I think these kind of exclusive shows that will only be on certain platforms will continue to grow. But it is also fantastic for the industry, I think, that equally so well advertising. Basically, everything's growing. And I think that's really, really good. Yeah. The flip side of that, though, is that, I mean, what I'm seeing across the board, like you're getting these amazing shows like yours that you're producing that are getting millions of downloads. And then you've got a lot of people who are still sort of relying on this, you know, man speaks to man model. Yeah, very much so. Interviews about how did you get here type thing. And then, you know, their audiences are stuck in the hundreds and they're not growing, even though they've done like 20, 30 episodes. Yeah. And I think what's happened was, it's like, I've noticed a shift. You know, if you look at the Amazon model, you go back to Amazon publishing like a few years when Amazon opened the 
floodgates on self-publish and created Kindle and then Create Space. Everybody had a go at self-publishing because it was just so easy to do. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of a barrier to entry, but it was doable. And you could have a book in somebody's wireless device within a day, effectively. And the interesting thing about that was at the beginning, if you published a book, you had an audience because there was a real demand for stuff to fill your Kindle with, right? And then what happened was is people worked it out. The prices of Kindle books went up to meet almost like published, you know, like paperback prices. And at the same time as well, Amazon said, okay, like all these guys who are kind of, you know, the long tail, we won't send them so much traffic anymore. We're going to send it to the, the banner publications. And so what happened was that the algorithm polarized, right? And we're starting to see that now with Spotify and Apple in that they give and much less to the bottom 90 in their rankings, right? Mm. And so I think what was happening as a result of that is it's getting easier to produce, right? Anybody can knock out a podcast now, which is great. The flip side is it's getting really hard to promote. Yeah. And that now is creating an interesting dynamic where you are almost getting the music industry happening all over again, right? Where you have, first of all, you need some form of airplay to discover your podcast. You need these conglomerates that are really just a, a silo of knowledge about marketing and data and success when it comes, you know, how do you take a, a format and blow it up, right? Yeah. That's like the record label, right? And then you need like the MTVs, which are like Spotify and so on. So I mean, what are you seeing from your side in terms of the promotion side? I mean, you talked about, you know, having the knowledge side of things. Well, what's kind of changing in the last year? Yeah, well, no, it's a really good thing, a really good question. And certainly from my perspective, you know, a few minutes ago, I've been talking about everything going, you know, going really well and growing. And actually, I bet so many people listening will, will be thinking, well, that's actually not the case. My colleagues are far better read on that than I, to be totally honest, about kind of how discoverability is improving. But certainly, from my perspective, there does continue to be a discovery issue. And as you said, if you're not being promoted on the front pages of uh, Twitter or Apple, it is quite tricky to know where else to go. How else do you get discoverability happening? And yeah, and that's something which my big thing on this is that this is not an all contained answer for it, but I really believe in promo swaps for everyone. And I think you always have from a lot of podcasts have this, this situation where people are just dropping off as the months and years go on. And I really want to that they respect and are similar to them. It's something I've been developing within our network, and it's really impactful because I've just been saying, well, you've got a podcast about whatever, and so do you. It's quite similar. Do you guys want to chit-chat and do a bit of cross-demotion? I know it might seem a bit analog, a bit manual, and there's no doubt better solutions for it, but certainly my solution has seemingly working within our network where I've seen what you know both shows promoting each other and both of them rising. And that doesn't rely, it doesn't require the big platforms to be on your side or okay stuff or whatever. It is very much, you know, but the most impactful way outside of brewed by the host for the other podcast and vice versa. Is that kind of how it works for you? Yeah. The ones you're talking so about? There's two ways. There's, there's the RSS feed drop where you, an episode of the other person's podcast literally gets dropped into the RSS feed of the existing podcast. Um, and, but that can be, you know, there's only so many times you can do that before people just, to unsubscribe because they're getting so many kind of other podcasts being promoted to them. So the way I've been going about it is really just doing earlier on, I mentioned about this kind of waterfall system of 
higher advertising going down to you know programmatic kind of costs. Underneath that, we have promos, and so literally whatever it is, we try and help facilitate these conversations at least. We they might play a trailer. The the host might talk about the podcast positively. Might have it as a guest speaker. Just whatever way might work for them to convince their audience that the other show is really worth checking out. And that for me, I think is I don't even think I know it's impactful because I obviously running the company, I get to have all these chats, and I know how impactful it is for them. It's just better for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. One plus one equals three in this world, doesn't yeah. it? And it's almost very similar to. I think back to the early days of blogging, you know, I'm talking like 2003, mm-hmm. 2002. Anybody that started a blog, the successful ones rose to the top and then they would start cross promoting. And that became a big thing. And there was a period of two or three years where that became really intense, really before social media took off, before Google really sort of dominated the consciousness of people. Yeah. It's a very similar thing, even like, you're talking about RSS feeds and the blogs, same thing happened, yeah. right? So it'd be interesting to see if there are kind of parallels there. I love that idea as well. It's even from like your TV days, I'm sure that just seems natural, doesn't it? That you have your excerpt or your, not your advert, but your feature, your drops and all that stuff. Like you're coming up, see, check out this program to 40 years. Absolutely. And, and that it seems like something we yeah, can Yeah, definitely. From. And it's definitely something where you don't, you know, in that situation, you need the TV channel to be involved. And it's very much like everyone's looking up, making sure that top person, they're on the side and they have the ear of that person. Whereas what I love about cross promotions is that really it can happen at any level. So we just have cross promotions going. We've started doing it pretty much all the time because when one cross promotion, say we have X amount of thousand, do we have agreement where we both do promos for X amount of people? When that runs out, we just go, we just plug someone else in. And as long as it's a similar podcast, we think our audience will like mm. it. It means the audience doesn't get bored. And I love about it. It's just, it's very empowering for each podcaster. And really, there is endless scope there because there's so many podcasts out there. And if you have one podcast and it's really big and one that's quite small, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't do it because you can agree to have, you say, well, if you've got one show that has a hundred thousand weekly listens, you've got one show that has a hundred listens. You could just say, well, why don't we do a hundred listens? And when that runs out, it's like for like. And so that way, you know, we do cross promotions with much smaller shows and we just do it for roughly the right, well, we do for the like for like amount. And, um, and I, it's not the perfect solution, but I think so we just put it, we dynamically insert it via our technology. So it's really easy. You put it in like an advert and then it just, you just say how many numbers, uh, how many listeners you want to get to it. Um, so it's really straightforward. Yeah. It's awesome. I really like that. What was the last podcast that you listened to that wasn't your own, Pascal? History that I've done really well. Right. What is it about history podcasts that, what is it about these sort of six hour epics and why is history and, you know, like the real nooks and crannies of human psychology, like real dictators appealing on podcasts? What does it work? What do you think? I think. On an emotional, uh, people love learning for starters. And secondly, there's, there's something really special about immersing yourself in a particular time in history. You're learning quite a lot and just feeling like you're in that time. What's the weirdest podcast you've listened to? Oh man, listening to, there's a podcast show called Supernatural. Listen to that for a bit and listen to, yeah, that was pretty strange. <laughs> Hence yeah. the name. All right. What would you know about podcasts now that you didn't know when you started out? 
I didn't realize how big it was going to get. And I didn't realize how kind of just quickly there'd be 2 million podcasts, which I think happened today, and how just because of habitual life it would get. People wash up, people go driving, and they always listen to podcasting. So yeah, I didn't quite realize how the scale of which it was going to become my niche thing to being something that everyone does. Pleasantly surprised. Totally. Very good. Do you have a podcast idol, somebody that you look up to and would like to be like in the podcast world, or are you there already? We've got a long way to go. Uh, I think for me, the guys at Wondery, seeing them create such varied content, but into a really high level, I really do respect that. Equally at the same level, on a, I do just also, some of my idols are people who have really niche, strange podcasts that I can listen to by 15 people, but they're 15 people who love kind of vintage tractors and it's all about vintage tractors. I genuinely, they're part of, they're my idols too, because I love how, you know, I love how niche they get and they've figured out this perfect audience for their passions and that's cool. That's really a podcast about vintage tractors. <laughs> yeah, there's a vintage, there's a podcast about everything. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I imagine there is, but <laughs> yeah. that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, totally. That's really- awesome. Have you ever had a really bad idea for a podcast? I've had lots. So many. I sometimes, you know, in Alan Partridge, the TV series, he pitches loads of TV shows. That's me most like Monday mornings over a coffee with my. Well, the commissioner. <laughs> yeah. Monkey tennis. Wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? monkey tennis. Yeah. That's me every Monday pitching. Is it really like that? I think my team will probably vouch for that very strongly. That I I come with lots of enthusiasm, and uh, they have to they pull you back. Pull me back. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Well, lucky you you work with them, right? Otherwise, we might have monkey tennis. Might work. You said this podcast for everything. (laughs) That would be amazing. Genuinely. You've been listening to The Age of Audio with me, Graham Brown, from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. To get access to all the audio conversations and book content for The Age of Audio, go to www.theageofaudio.com. One more time, theageofaudio.com.